Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Laura Unflat. I'm a sole practitioner focusing in family law matters in Wellesley. I practice in Norfolk, Suffolk, and Middlesex counties doing exclusively family law, um, mostly divorce, custody, support matters, uh, both as a litigator and a mediator. Welcome. Hi, my name is Gail Stone Tereski. I'm a partner at Sugarman Rogers, where I too specialize in divorce, custody, division of complicated assets, my net worth individuals, prenups, postnups, um, anything related to family law. Hi everyone, my name is Gina Calabro. I am a partner at Brick Jones McBrien and Hickey, a um, small family law boutique in Newton. And um, I've been practicing for over 15 years and um, like the other panelists, practice in all areas of family law with um, sort of my, my area of interest is mostly um, related to dealing with complex asset division, high um, sort of uh, complicated executive compensation issues and things of that nature. Although I also do a lot of work in the custody um, and child related issues realm as well. And I, like Laura, I'm also a mediator. Or so do you want to get started and tell them sort of the agenda and what we're going to be doing? Go ahead, oh. Laura. Uh, so we're going to break up the agenda. I'm going to start with custody matters and parenting plans. Uh, Gail will talk about various issues in custody cases, specifically domestic violence matters, uh, when a GAL or, or a PC or an attorney for the children will be involved. And... Uh, uh, actually, Gail and, and Gina will talk about those matters uh, back and forth. And then at the very end, we will talk about uh, some COVID-19 specific issues that might come up, as well as answering questions that come up during the presentation in the Q&A. But we're going to hold on those questions until the very end. Okay. So let me start out uh, briefly talking about custody. There are two kinds of custody. There's legal custody and there's what's known as physical custody or, or residential custody of the children. Um, legal custody for married people is presumed to be shared legal custody. Uh, in the, and, and I should start out, excuse me. Um, legal custody involves the major decisions that are made on behalf or the welfare of the child or children. They would include such issues as educational, medical, uh, religious, moral upbringing, those types of uh, major decisions where the two parents would need to come together to discuss those issues and make decisions on behalf of the child. There is a presumption for married people that there would be shared legal custody, uh, although there's a, there's a rebuttable presumption in the event of domestic violence. And I think Gail is going to get into that uh, with a little bit more specificity when she gets into it. Um, for unmarried people, that presumption, of course, does not apply. Uh, and there is a, a way, and I think it's actually dealt with in a different fundamentals class, on how uh, custody would be adjudicated in that case. But of course, the mother is uh, the legal custodian, and then the parents would need to uh, move forward with a complaint under 209C. Uh, does anybody have anything to add? I, I know I went through that very quickly. 
Um, so there is then physical custody and physical custody uh, can take on many different uh, plans and it's very specific to the actual family. Uh, there has always been the traditional every other weekend and one meal during the week. That's the contemplated one third, two third situation. Um, and then people have over time have become more creative with the involvement more with both parents equally. Uh, there's a shared parenting plan as well. And even within the shared parenting plan, uh, that can take on different scenarios. Uh, some parents do one week on, one week off. A very traditional one is where a parent would have, would be with the children two days, the other parent two days, and then they would alternate weekends. And there's a, a shared parenting plan in the draft parenting plan and custody agreement that we've attached with your materials. And we take on two, a couple of different scenarios. One is the 225 scenario that I just mentioned where one parent would be with the children the same two days, say Monday, Tuesday, and then the transition day would be Wednesday. Uh, and then that other parent would be with the children Wednesday and Thursday and then transition to the every other weekend starting on Friday. Um, it's very specific to the families and it would depend on how well the families get along, what that transition would be. Some people like to have uh, as little contact as possible with each other. So it would have the parent for the weekend picking up at school on Friday, school or daycare or camp, and then dropping the children off at school or daycare or camp on Monday morning. Uh, and then again, with the Wednesday transition, often being at the, the school as well. Um, the custody plan being uh, new when you first meet a client, one would have to get some sense of what the parents' issues are in advance. And sometimes we recommend that if you think there's going to be a custody issue, uh, that will be an adversarial action, we often recommend that the, that the parent keep a log or a journal of what involvement each parent has in the children's lives. Uh, everybody thinks that they're gonna always remember everything, but it is pretty important to jot down what happens, who takes care of the children on a regular basis, who is involved in the homework, who takes care of medical appointments, both setting them up as well as attending the medical appointments, school appointments, who's in contact with the teachers, who works with homework, who prepares the meals. Uh, so if a, if a client is advised to give a journal or keep a journal, uh, hopefully you'll never need it, but it's, it's very good advice, I think. I think we all agree uh, to keep some kind of journal or log and I recommend that most people keep it in, in more of a form of, of bullet points. It doesn't have to be a very long narrative, but just bullet points of uh, the time and, and so forth. That particularly takes place if parents have already separated before the process takes place and they don't have a formal parenting plan, but maybe something is just left uh, up in the air. So this way you can really find out how often parents are taking, taking their parenting time or helping out with the care of the children. So uh, you should all have a sample custody and parenting plan agreement for uh, Tweedledee and Tweedledum. I would refer you to that agreement 
it's a it's a good baseline. But keep in mind, uh, since every case is important to your client and in, in how they relate with the person they'll be co-parenting with, I would recommend uh, that you take a look at this and ex expand on it. Some fundamentals that you need to have in place, of course, would be the actual schedule, uh, except in the case perhaps of when a parent lives out of town or when the children are significantly older, uh, where you might put in something a little bit more or, or a little less uh, scheduled, I would say it's important as a baseline to create expectations of when each parent will be responsible for parenting time. Uh, I actually even like to include that when, when the kids are teenagers and in some respects make their own decisions about where they'll be because they, it gives each parent um, a responsibility and sets expectations also for the teenager so they're not the ones uh, running the show and where they'll be and then there's some, some uh, accountability there. So being very specific with the schedule some parents need uh, very, very specific down to the time, the place and location of pickup and drop off, uh, who would do the pickup and drop off on a regular basis, a week to week basis. Um, and then I like to give my clients a list of just about every holiday I can think of. And holidays and vacation times are often broken out into different ways. There are you know, holidays where school is not in session. There are holidays that relate more uh, to religion or other traditions. And then there's you know, school vacation time. All of those should be looked at individually. For instance, many holidays when there's no school in session might be a Monday. Um, is the parent who had the children for the weekend able to keep the children all day on Monday? or would the drop-off be at the same time, for instance, school would start? What happens when uh, there's unexpectedly no school? And again, we'll put COVID aside for the moment, um, but snow days, what happens when the child is sick? So those are the type of things uh, I like to make sure are in each parenting plan. Um, and then what happens when the parenting plan needs to change? Uh, is there makeup time? Each individual family may have, you know, if one parent travels, for instance, uh, is there a right of first refusal? And I think practitioners go both ways on the right of first refusal. And by that, I mean, if one parent uh, can't exercise their parenting time for whatever reason, is it automatic that they have to ask the other parent first before they seek their own caregiver uh, to be responsible for the children during that time? So that's, I think that can be a mixed bag um, and it really would depend and sometimes it depends on the length of time. Uh, the other very important feature I find in parenting plans is how the parents will communicate with each other. Uh, if there is shared legal custody, and I'm just gonna assume at this point there is, uh, each would have the right to access medical documents and education, be in touch with the teachers, et cetera. Um, and that's fine, but there's also a reality of just day-to-day -day communicating with the other parent about what's happening. And that relates back to how well the parents get along. So would there be a journal that, that goes back and forth with the children 
uh, that's not for their eyes, but only for the parents' eyes? Will they communicate via email or a paid program such as our family wizard? That would all depend. Uh, but the most important thing about these parenting plans is to make sure that these are for the parents to give them guidelines and that whatever happens, the children are removed from any decisions that are made about the parenting time and that they communicate, the parents communicate directly. So that was a parenting plan, the quickest I could possibly do. Also in the, in the sample parenting plan, we have a provision for a parent coordinator when the parents can't get along. And I'm gonna defer that uh, down when Gina speaks. Does anybody have anything to add? I, I went through that quickly. I have a couple of really quick things I could add. So um, just in terms of when you're initially meeting with a client, sometimes it's unfathomable when clients come in. The idea of having to share their children and share time with their children can be really overwhelming. And so, um, and people worry a lot about, you know, are the kids going to be okay in this process of having to shuttle back and forth between homes and things like that. So a few things I do with new clients, there's a really good book called The Truth About Children and Divorce by um, Dr. Robert Emery. He's actually come and spoken at um, AFCC conference stuff in Massachusetts. And I, I oftentimes, if I have a parent who's really feeling overwhelmed about that piece of things, will recommend that book to a client. I also like to explain to clients that the standard that the court is going to apply is the court is going to look to what's in the best interest for the children in terms of deciding parenting time if, if parties are unable to do it themselves. And while history is a really important piece of that to kind of look at what historical parenting roles are, it's not necessarily determinative. Um, there is an expectation that things, are, things change when people get divorced and it may be that a less involved parent who has the capacity and the skills to be a little bit more involved is gonna get more time than, than a parent might otherwise expect. So sometimes people come in and say, well, I've been doing everything and um, he or she works until late in the evening and they don't really have, they've never done any of this before, but some of our role is to sort of counsel parents and to help them kind of evolve their thinking about the other parent's role when it comes to parenting plans and things of that. And we always, like Laura sort of mentioned earlier, we always kind of do that against the backdrop of explaining to clients um, what things might look like if they end up in, in court in front of a judge. Not that that's where they want to be, but that's always the backdrop. Um, so, you know, those are just some sort of initial things that I like to do with clients to help them understand that history doesn't necessarily decide what happens going forward. Um, and, and sort of take it from there. Gail, did you have anything to add? No, but I think it segues into my piece on GALs. Because typically you would ask for a GAL to be appointed in scenarios where I call it the he said, she said of parenting. Um, he said, I'm the caretaker. I take care of the children all the time. You know, my wife's an alcoholic. She doesn't able to drive the children. And you know, juxtaposed to the mom saying he's got a drug problem, he is, you know, uh, yells at me, degrades me, denigrates me, hits me in front of the children. Um, he couldn't possibly be a caretaker for these children. I think 
you should only have supervised visits. So you have mom saying one thing and dad saying something else, and the court doesn't know what to do as to where they should in the best interests of the children um, make some semblance of what a parenting plan would look like. And so under those scenarios where the parties can't come together, you know, usually typically we will see it in issues of domestic violence. Um, in fact, I always see, and, and I give my clients when they come to me for their initial consultation, I give them the child support guidelines. I will give them a copy of the alimony statute. I'll give them 20834 and the remaining sections. And I'll give them 20828, which is the custody statute. So they have an idea of what that means. You know, if they're really talking about some type of domestic violence, I might suggest to them that there is a presumption against joint uh, custody if it is to such a degree that it would not be in the best interest of the children. Explain to them the judge is going to have to um, elicit and prepare an affidavit and, and rather findings as to, you know, if in the event custody and parenting time is awarded given the, you know, 209A or 209A that might be effect or some allegations of, of domestic violence why the judge may believe a joint parenting plan is still in you know, the best interest of the children. So I give them a lot of material when they look at. But now I have a client sitting across from my table, usually not happy, very upset, just like Gina had indicated. And that parent thinks that the parenting plan should be very different than what I'm hearing opposing counsel or hearing the allegations and what do you do about it? Because what can the court do? And I, I have put together a PowerPoint. I don't know whether uh, you can see it or not, but um, it is in your set of, of factors or, and, and materials. And one of the things that you can do is to request that the court appoint a guardian ad litem. And it's done by motion. It can be in a subject to motion. It can be that you and opposing counsel or uh, the two clients determine uh, the name of a guardian ad litem. I serve on a list of guardian ad litems. Um, you can pick one or the court can select one for you off the list. Very often we'll tell new lawyers Get a sense of who it is that you're agreeing to. I'll often call, I could call Jane or Laura and say, have you heard of this GAL before? And how do you think this GAL would do under the circumstances of my case? And so you get a sense as to, um, and, and lawyers do this all the time. We vet out the GALs to see if we can come to some agreement on our own. Uh, the theory is it's, you know, sometimes the devil you know is better than the devil that you don't know. And perhaps that would be a better fi fix for the amount of cost because they are costly and that um, whether or not they have the right skill set. And the reason I mention this is that there are two types generally of guardian ad litems. It's category E and category F. Category E is pertaining to those individuals with a mental health background, psychologist, psychiatrist, mental health worker, social worker, licensed social worker. I am not. I am in, um, and those people would be called uh, evaluators. I am an investigator. I am a category F. And that's usually attorneys would be a category F. And so the court would instruct me 
to do an investigation. And specifically when I request a guardian ad litem in my motion, I will specifically tell the court what I'm looking for. I will sometimes even put in the name of somebody that I think would be appropriate. Um, not unusual for me to see clients that have mental health issues or their spouses have mental health issues. So a lot of people with anxiety, depression, bipolar, personality disorders. And, you know, I, I went to law school. Yes, I have a degree in psychology, but I, I can't evaluate somebody with any mental health. I can't do mental health, uh, neurological, psychological testing. That might be something that is needed. You know, some psychological testing might be needed. So I would specifically ask the court, explain to the court what the problem is. I have one parent thinks it's A, one parent thinks it's B. They're not going to agree. We need somebody with more skills and more time to do an evaluation or an independent investigation and to come up with some recommendations that will help the court determine what type of custody plan would be in the best interest of children. Now, um, when I get the appointment, I'm always very careful to read it carefully um, and read it before I even send it to the client. Because if I ask for category E and I get a category F, is that good? Am I willing to accept it? Do I want to go back to the court and figure out, no, I'm sorry, that's not the right one. Do I want to keep an F and maybe ask that uh, investigator to independently request a psychiatric evaluation, either on one party or both parties? Um, I also want to know whether or not in that appointment, whether or not the guardian ad litem was requested to do recommendations. Sometimes you will see that somebody's just appointed to do an investigation, but not make recommendations. And they leave that up to the court to determine. I have to say that 99% of the ones that I get now, judges will ask for recommendations. I think that's a different trend when I first started practicing. Judges would just ask for the investigation and make their own recommendations. I think most judges now want our opinion. They want us to make recommendations. And so um, you usually find the recommendations on the back of the GAL report. I also want to know how many hours have been allotted to their appointment. So if I have a really high conflict case where there are multiple allegations of abuse and certainly different scenarios over what caretaking one parent did versus the other. And the judge appoints 10 hours. I'm suspect about that, given I know how many hours that I need to put in to do an investigation like this. You know, for instance, I, I, I you know, done investigations where there are uh, domestic allegations and domestic violence. DCF has been involved multiple times. You know, people have lost their jobs. There's children that don't want to see their parents. There's parental alienation issues that have come up. There are uh, situations where you have uh, parenting resistance and whether or not you need a reconciliation therapist. Those types of really complicated, difficult, difficult issues are not going to be done in 10 hours. And so that might be something that you might want to look to. And you can ask the court to amend the appointment, to uh, 
include some hours or change the category. Um, you know, as I said, um, category E evaluator is a mental health social worker. Uh, you need to have credentials. You need to have the experience. I've been appointed sometimes in situations where it should have had an E, and I've declined it because I, you know, the, the GL has the right to decline if it's done by appointment. And so you really want to make sure, um, for instance, when I'm reviewing a report and it's an E, I want to make sure that person did have the right credentials. You know, if, if, it's, if it's an F and it should have been an E, that might be a basis for me to contest it, you know, if I'm not happy with the outcome of that. Um, you know, the category F attorneys are investigators. We have a requirement to do a number of uh, uh, continuing legal education evolved around uh, the credentialing. We have to submit our credentials every year. Um, I'd be, you know, thinking about ways in terms of if I wasn't happy with the outcome, you know, how many years has the lawyer practiced? How many GALs has that lawyer done, you know, in the past? Is this their first GAL appointment? Have they done the appropriate training? And have they uh, really complied with the standards and guidelines that we've actually, I think, as part of your training materials and showed you what the standards are? You know, have they spoken to both parents? You know, have they done a house visit? Have they talked to all the caretakers? Have they talked to the school? Have they talked to teachers? Have they talked to friends? Did they ask for collaterals? How did they talk to the collaterals? Um, you know, did they speak to the doctors? If there's DV, if there's domestic, you know, if DC is in, DCF is involved, have they spoken to the DCF? And so I'll take, when I'm reviewing my a GAL report that I've received, I'll go through each list, I'll go through every checklist and check off to determine whether or not there are any gaps in what that GAL should have done in lieu, in, in comparison to what the standards allow. AFCC has standards. The American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers also has standards. I take those out, compare them all, and it takes me a really long time to read a report once it comes in. And I, I'm not going to be talking about this before or later, rather, but just in terms of having a, a, a tip, uh, the courts used to not be able to release the GAL report at all to anybody, and you would need to go to court and read it. Several years ago, they changed the statute to me. If there are two attorneys and two attorneys agree, the report can be released to the attorney, provided the attorney does not, um, the, the attorney can have the client come in the office and read it, but they're not allowed to give a copy to a client. Typically in situations where they're pro se litigants, the courts will require the litigants to read the report in the registry of deeds. Now you have to understand this is a really good position because you know, one parent may not be happy with that GAL report or one parent may be very happy with it. And you wouldn't want that GAL report to be placed on the refrigerator door so that all the children could be able to read it, see it, Obviously, that would have a devastating effect on all the children. And there are things in there that you don't want the public to see. So the GALs are, uh, are impounded. I think that's a, a good decision because I feel more comfortable as a GAL because I can say anything. You know, whatever anybody said to me under the LAM warnings are not confidential. 
so I don't have to be concerned that I'm telling tales. It's the one instance where I can take uh, really hearsay information that may not necessarily be introduced into evidence at the time of trial and try to make some recommendations. And I, I tell each client to really read it. You may not like it, but you're going to really hope that this GAL did a really good job in trying to get the family to move on arriving at a parenting plan that they can live with. Very often the implementation of that GL report may come from both parents sitting down with their attorneys, reading it, <clears throat> and seeing if there's something that they can live with. Now I often get questioned when my client doesn't like the GAL, what can I do about it? Is this a done deal? Should I just let the judge make the recommendations consistent with the report? Is the other side going to file a motion to implement the recommendations of that GAL report? Um, and so, you know, I take the deposition of a GAL, can do that on a number of occasions. Be surprised as how many that you find has loopholes. And so that at the time of the trial, you get called as a GAL and you cross-examine them. Luckily for me, I haven't been cross-examined yet, so we'll, we'll take that as a positive. Um, but I would certainly ask the GAO, why didn't you talk to that, those three collaterals? Are you aware if you talk to that collateral that this is what the collateral would have said? They would have said that, that, that mother, you know, is so drunk at three o'clock that she can't go out the door to drive her children to school or father has really been, you know, abusive to mom in front of all the children. I'll ask them to tell me their last continuing legal education classes they've taken. I've asked to know what their experience is in these particular, you know, uh, domestic abuse. What's your experience with drug and alcohol? You know, what did you do to establish this parenting plan? And let's assume they say I relied on collateral A. And you find out collateral A has never seen the children before. And it's only based on what dad has been telling collateral A. And so you really have to read the report really carefully to see if you can come up with some, you know, basis for objecting to it or in the same way coming up with basis to accept it. Um, one of the other things I'll look at is how long did the GL take to do their report? It's taking six months. And that report may be stale by the time you get into court at some point. Does the GL have to do a updated report to try to look to see what's going on? Assume we have domestic violence. What has the GAL done to try to help the family? Um, I'll often send people to DV therapy. I will always sometimes require they attend a special class I may suggest they attend the barriers class, overcome barriers class. You know, uh, the uh, Williams College has uh, documents or uh, uh, seminars that they can take. Let the children go to therapy. You know, what type of DV class will you get them to go to? And if you're not, why not? Um, sometimes I do take a lot um, of state pay cases that are just between uh, litigants that don't have funds. And they get the same rights for me to do the same investigation that I would do with anybody. Uh, very often you'll see every GAL should have an engagement letter 
setting forth the number of hours they're going to be working, what the recommendations were, what they're expected to do. Um, and I have every perspective, you know, GL client that I'm going to see, selling that engagement letter, setting forth what my rate is, what my hours are going to be, and what my expectations are. Um, one thing, and then I'm going to sort of jump to the end because I'm going to get Laura to get some time here as well. <coughs> Excuse me. You want to make sure that the GL, GAL has given something called the appropriate LAM warnings. And what that means is that that GAL, either an E or an F, has told everyone that he or she speaks with that whatever they say to, e, to that GAL is not confidential. And that, that you have the basis to use whatever they say to you as part of your report. And you need to tell that to everybody before they get started and speaking with the GAL. So if you see a GAL report where there isn't any reference to a lamb warning and your client comes back to you and said, yeah, I told the GAL everything that you want, and maybe that's something that you can consider in bringing to the court's attention some concerns. Now, the last thing I want to leave you with is how do you prepare your client for the GL report? What's a practice tip? I always do mock interviews with my client. I pretend I'm the GAL and I go through with them everything they're going to be asked. Is that always what it is? No, but I have a pretty good sense of where the GL is going to go. I will often hire an outside expert, another GAL, to help me prepare the client. You know, if I think it's a client that, that I just, you know, close my eyes and hope for the best that I'm never going to be able to prepare this client, this is a good opportunity for me to hire an expert to help that person prepare their presentation. I've also gone with clients to a GAL and gone to the investigation. That has pros and it has cons. Some GALs will say, no, I'm not interviewing you. You have to, I don't want to be there. Or they'll let me stay and they write in the report. The client came with the lawyer and the lawyer wouldn't let the client talk. That has an adverse inference to it. Maybe it doesn't, but you have to really consider whether you want to go or not. Uh, that can sometimes backtrack the, the, the problem to begin with and may make it worse. Um, and you feel like you're sending your child out to school for the first time. And then I always have the client call me right away when they're done. And I take a note of what they talked to, who they asked for, who were the collaterals. I will sometimes call collaterals too before I let them give out the names. I want to make sure that I'm giving them all the information that is needed. Uh, and I want to make sure when they're done, are there any uh, action things that they need to do? Do they need to supplement any answers? The last thing you want to do is to be disrespectful to the GAL. You don't want your client to be angry at that meeting. You want the client to say, yes, I understand, and respond as quickly as possible to whatever the GAL may ask. Uh, let me see if there's anything else. I think if you go through my uh, PowerPoint, is pretty good in terms of you know what therapist do you talk to. Uh, if the client is going to give any records to the GAL, I will usually get the GL all the pleadings 
so that GL knows what's going on in the case. But if there are any hospital records, medical records, school records, I'll have my client either bring that with them or bring it or send it to the GL in advance. But make sure you know exactly what the client has given to the GL and that you've kept copies of it. Um, don't be nervous to ask the GL what was the hypothesis, why you did what you did. Ask them if they follow the AAML, the AFCC standards. Read them yourself and make sure that you understand them. Um, read, when you read the report, did it differ from what your client told you? Clients would come in and say, oh, I did a great job. I'm, I'm all set. Let me get custody. I know it's good. And then the report comes back bad for them. Sit the client down in, the, in your office and go through it and figure out where was there a disconnect. Was it the client? Was it the GAL? Was there any bias? You know, was anybody, you know, if there's any DV that has reported to you while you've been a GAL, you're a mandated reporter. Were they, you know, did they report it correctly? Was there any reporting that needed to get done? Um, and I, I think as a practice tip, um, if it's really against the weight of the evidence, don't be scared to bring that to the court's attention through a deposition or through a cross-examination or direct examination of the GAL. You're here to do a job for your client. You want what's in the best interest of the child, bearing that in mind when you read the report. Um, so if any, either one of you want to add anything else? I think I'm going to, I think, I don't have anything to add. We should probably jump to the next segment. We've got about 15 minutes left. Um, okay, so I'm going to talk about two things. First, briefly, another tool that you as an attorney may have in your arsenal is to consider whether or not in a contested custody matter, it would be appropriate to ask the court to appoint an attorney for the children. So um, there are private, there are attorneys who can be appointed to represent children in a private pay basis, but most if not all of the counties in Massachusetts have what's called an attorneys representing children program, known in short as the ARC program, which is a free program where the court can appoint a volunteer attorney to serve as a, um, an advocate for a child in a particular case. Now, an attorney who is representing a child is very different from a guardian ad litem. And I've been appointed many, many times over probably the last eight or so years. And I can't tell you how many lawyers are confused about my role. An attorney for a child is not a neutral. Their role is to advocate for what a child's expressed preference is regarding whatever the contested issues are that are before the court, as long as the child has the capacity to express a preference. And, um, and so what that means is, a, so how this typically works is that either a party can file a motion asking to have an attorney appointed for a child. Of course, whether or not you choose to do that, in some part depends on what you think a child might tell his or her lawyer about what he or she wants. So you have to, as the lawyer, weigh that um, decision in terms of how that might cut in your case. Does it help for the child in the case to have an advocate or not? Um, but assuming it does, you can file a motion. Uh, attorneys, you can assent to a motion to have a child appointed. Or I have seen situations where a judge has sua sponte decided that the judge wants there to be an attorney for the child because the judge wants to hear what the child has to say. I have been appointed um, in cases where children are 
as young as literally one and two years old and as old as uh, 16 and 17 years old. So it has really run the gamut in terms of when judges choose to use attorneys for children. Um, in terms of what you, what an attorney for a child can do, they can file motions, they can conduct discovery, they can participate in depositions, court hearings, file pretrial memos, um, and participate even in trials. And basically, as the attorney for the child, you have a responsibility to um, help the child understand sort of what the issues are and, and ascertain from the child what their preference is on the issues at hand. Um, you, in order for a child's preference to be something that you would advocate for for the court, it has to be what's called an adequately considered decision. There are some criteria and some guidance given to lawyers as how you determine whether a child's expressed preference is something that you can comfortably advocate for. They have to be able to communicate a preference. Um, it has to be have some rationale. There has to be a decision-making process that you can sort of understand. So it's really making sure that when a child is telling you, I want to live with my mom, or I don't want to see um, my, my grandparents, that they actually can kind of provide some reasoning behind that. Now, um, if you have a child who's too young to ex express a preference, so you know you have a one-year-old who has an attorney representing representing him or her, um, the attorney you as the attorney may use what's called substituted judgment, where essentially you stand in the shoes of the child and you attempt to ascertain what the child's position would be if the child was able to articulate a position to you. Um, similarly, sometimes you'll have children who are expressing a preference, but they they may be expressing a preference, but you you through kind of looking at the criteria can have determined that it's not what's called an adequately considered decision. And then there's a whole decision tree um, that you can look at that sort of talks about if a child's expressing a preference, but the preference is something that may be detrimental to them, um, putting them at risk for substantial harm. There are certain things that you can do in front of a judge versus if a child's expressing a preference, but the preference would not be harmful to them if advocated. Um, but either way, you have to let the court know sort of what the child is saying. And then um, there are some sort of additional steps you can take. I won't get into all of that now because we're a bit short on time, but I just wanted to make everyone aware that one thing to consider if there is a, a dispute regarding parenting time, custody, children who are refusing to go with a parent for their parenting time or other sort of high conflict issues that this is a tool and it is sometimes a free tool which can be really helpful for people who are um, rate sensitive and cost sensitive because custody litigation is always extremely expensive. I think um, for me, those are often the most expensive cases that we have to deal with. Now, parenting coordination, just to move on. So what is a parenting coordinator? A parenting coordinator is either an attorney or a mental health professional who um, has to meet certain criteria. In your materials, we have standing order 1-17, which is our parenting coordination standing order. It's only a few years old. I believe it came out in 2017. Prior to that, we did not have as much formal guidance as to the appointment of parenting coordinators. Um, so if you look at section three of that standing order, you'll see what the re qualification requirements are in order for someone to serve as a parenting coordinator. Um, a parenting coordinator is someone who is appointed and has what I think of as sort of a two, potentially a sort of a two-step role. 
Um, the first is that they're, they're, the goal is for that. Oh, excuse me. The first is for the goal that the parenting coordinator um, attempts to sort of mediate the dispute between parents. So um, that's sort of phase one is that a parenting coordinator may take an issue that parties are having difficulty with and attempt to help them resolve that issue by agreement. If parents are unable to reach an agreement, and if the parenting coordinator has been vested with the authority to make what's called, what are sort of typically labeled as binding recommendations, then the parenting coordinator, once parties have reached an impasse, can be vested with the authority to make a binding written recommendation or decision that the parties are in theory required to follow unless and until a party takes that decision and um, takes the issue to court and has a judge weigh in on the decision. Um, parenting coordinators are required to sort of keep their communications with families confidential, but they can also be subpoenaed and they can be um, required to serve as a fact witness at a hearing. Um, I had a case many years ago where an assault of one parent by the other occurred in the parenting coordinator's waiting room, and we had to subpoena the parenting coordinator to a restraining order hearing. So um, unlike mediators, where there is sort of this absolute sort of um, privilege and confidentiality in the sense that mediators can't be subpoenaed to court and have to testify about what goes on in mediation, parenting coordinators can be subject to subpoenas. They can be subject to the requirement of being a fact witness. Um, and that is found also in Standing Order 1-17 in um, Section 10, if you look at that. Now, what can parenting coordinators deal with in terms of issues? They cannot deal with issues of legal custody in terms of you know, determining which parent is going to have legal custody or if there's going to be a change in legal custody. They similarly can't do that with physical custody, and they aren't supposed to make decisions regarding major adjustments to parenting schedules. All of that stays within the purview of the probate and family court. The kinds of issues that parenting coordinators deal with are typically non-financial in nature. If you look at section seven of the standing order that we provided, there is an itemized list of the various types of issues that parenting coordinators can deal with. I'm not going to read the whole list because we're a little short on time, but it's minor issues related to parenting time. Helping parents come up with a routine for transitions that reduces, you know, if there's a particular issue, like one parent identifies that a child is having a particularly difficult time with a transition, it might be that the parties discuss, well, what's going on that might be causing that? And the parenting coordinator may help the parties reach some um, process for transitions to make things easier on the child. Uh, parties may have disagreements about what type of um, clothing and things children are going to be permitted to um, transfer from one house to the other. Sometimes you'll hear parents say, well, I don't want my child bringing that game from my house to the other parent's house because I bought that game for them. And there might be a, you know, a discussion that needs to occur about what is appropriate in terms of letting children bring things from one house to another. The parent coordinator's role in some ways is also an educational role because sometimes parents, even though they're doing their best, may need to be educated about what is actually appropriate for their children, what, is, what are appropriate things to say to children. And so parenting coordinators can do a little bit of policing of that type of behavior through discussing, discussing issues of dispute 
with parties. So I think it's important that you all take a look at section seven of the standing order because that um, does give sort of a more comprehensive list of what parenting coordinators can assist with. Additionally, parenting coordinators can also help with other issues that may not be identified in section seven, but that parties may identify as a particular issue that they need help with. Um, there may be decisions that need to be made based on something very particular to the child or a, a life event that's happened or things of that nature where pay, PCs can help. In terms of the process of working with a parenting coordinator, um, parenting coordinators will have a contract for parties to sign. Um, a, an agreement to have a parenting coordinator will need to be approved by the court. Um, section five of the standing order talks a little bit about what's required in terms of an agreement that would be approved by a court. Um, parenting coordination is something that parties need to agree to. It is true that a court has the ability to order parties to work with a parenting coordinator, but only if there is no dispute regarding how it's going to be paid. So generally speaking, I think in practice, and Laura and Gail may agree, in practice, you need to have both parents on board. Because if you don't have both parents on board, then unless the parent, one, the parent who is sort of for it is willing to assume all of the financial responsibility for the process, the court's hands are really tied. We have case law, the Bauer case, that basically says a judge cannot require parties to use the services of a parenting coordinator if that involves ordering one party over his or her objection to pay for those services. So effectively, and if you look at sort of section six of the standing order, um, effectively, someone can sort of veto using a parenting coordinator by putting up a big stink about money. And if the other parent's not willing to pay for it, the court doesn't have any recourse. So generally speaking, I think that parenting coordination, if it's to be effective at all, also just needs to be a voluntary process. When working with parenting coordinators, your clients will work with the coordinator on a process for communicating and submitting issues that are in dispute to the PC. The PC may help them come up with some ground rules in terms of communication, what the PC needs to be copied on, timelines for sort of timeliness of getting back to people regarding issues. And then, as I said earlier, when there's a contested issue, the PC will first work as a mediator and try and help the parties bridge the gap. If parties are able to reach agreements, the parenting coordinator will write up those agreements, um, but those agreements are not necessarily binding unless they're then made part of a court order. So, um, and the, actually in section eight of the standing order, there is some specific language that requires parenting coordinators to warn parties that if they reach an agreement on something, that's great. And it's great to have it in a written document from the PC, but for enforcement purposes, it's not um, necessarily gonna be enforceable unless it's incorporated into an order of the court. And then again, as I said earlier, if parties have agreed to give the parenting coordinator authority to decide issues when they reach an impasse, then the PC is able to do that. So let's say the parties have a dispute over whether the child is going to engage in a particular extracurricular activity. Um, is the child gonna do club soccer or regular soccer? Um, and the parties have different concerns about overscheduling or how, you know, the, the, the actual schedule of time or maybe the child has a tricky knee and there's, there's concern. The parenting coordinator um, can work through that with the parties and then ultimately render a binding dis, you know, sort of decision or recommendation. And if the parties have agreed that that will be binding, then it's binding until the parties um, go to court and sort of if a party seeks to have that flipped. 
As, in terms of fees, the parenting coordinator also has the authority typically in agreements to allocate fees disproportionately if he or she believes that one party is acting unreasonably. There's also, I won't get into this, but there's also um, language in the standing order that talks about what happens if a party wants to terminate working with a parenting coordinator, replace the parenting coordinator, or extend an existing parent coordination order. PC orders are required to have sort of an end time. They can't just be sort of an open-ended, we're going to work with a parenting coordinator. You're required to say, you know, it'll be for a year or two years or six months. And so there are some processes about how you can get that um, extended that you should take a look at. Um, I think as a practical matter, when deciding whether or not this is something that you think might be um, helpful in your case, you have to certainly think about the dynamics that are involved. If there's a history of domestic violence or other family violence, it may be that this is a less appropriate forum for your cases. Um, sometimes also you have to think about realistically, um, are the dynamics such that a PC is even going to be able to be effective? Um, some cases you have people who just need a little bit of help and this is where it's helpful. In other cases, you might have a situation where one party is such a nightmare that it may not even necessarily be sort of a useful tool. So that's all also something that I think, um, you know, making the decision about whether a parenting coordinator is appropriate is something that can happen somewhat earlier on in the case um, or something that may not happen until kind of the end of the case when you have a better understanding of dynamics and people's capacity to reach agreement. So I'm mindful of the time because it's already one o'clock and we do want to be able to take questions and we also wanted to touch on sort of um, COVID-19 and how that is impacting um, parenting and custody issues. So Laura or Gail, do one of you want to talk a little bit about that? So uh, Chief Justice Casey issued a letter, uh, sort of a recommendation as to what parents should do. And it was very well written and it's actually in your materials. And what they said, what he said is that this um, pandemic is not intended to deny either parent access to the child, that you are to continue on the parenting plan that is in existence. But I don't, I don't have the actual letter in front of me. I've read it so many times. But they, he seemed to intimate, though, that everybody had to be practical and that if there was you know, for instance, he didn't give examples, but if there was one parent who was a first responder and might have been exposed, um, it might be okay for one parent to say, you know what, why don't you stay, you know, 14 days and make sure you're okay and I'll keep the child and perhaps you could have makeup time or you can have more time next, you know, in two weeks. And so the idea is what he was telling everybody is to be practical and remember to provide access, FaceTime, Zoom time. There's so many other things that you can do than to just strip one parent of any access that that parent might have. Um, Gail, just to, just, to, just to tell you, so I, I, pull, I have the letter. He yes. says, um, he says in, this is, so parenting orders are not stayed during this period of time. In fact, it is important that children spend time with both of their parents and that each parent have the opportunity to engage in family activities where provided for by court order. Then, and this is what you were just referring to, he says, in cases where a parent must self-quarantine or is otherwise restricted from having contact with others, 
both parents should cooperate to allow for parenting time by video conference or telephone. So I think, you know, um, I agree with Gail. I think that what Judge Casey was intimating was that there are going to be situations where someone may get sick, be ordered by their doctor to self-quarantine and isolate. And these are sort of tricky times, but this sort of spirit of cooperation is what should prevail and kind of being practical about things. Now, how that translates into all of the little hypos we were discussing yesterday when Laura and Gail and I were preparing for this is another story. I don't know if we want to go down that road. Some of the things we talked about, and I've heard that some people might be quick to file a contempt against somebody just to preserve their rights. You know, you always have to be mindful of the fact that it might come to bite you later on in that you've taken a very unreasonable position because, you know, God forbid some parent has had the virus and is in bed and sick and, you know, the other parent said he couldn't come over and that parent, well, you know, they're on, you know, almost close to going to the hospital files a complaint for contempt. You know, is that going to be worth it? On the other hand, if somebody is, you know, not FaceTiming, somebody is not, you know, providing some access, maybe they are using this as a tool to keep one parent away. And I think that the three of us sort of came in, and I don't, I don't want to talk from anybody else, but each fact in each family is so different that it's so hard to predict. You know, we kind of all suggested that whatever our decision would be, we would all do what we thought was best for our children. But on the other hand, when you do that, you have to be mindful that you're not the only parent. There's another parent involved as well. I'll throw it back to the two of you. Well, when advising our clients, absolutely, Gail. Uh, but I, I think we can go even a step further during this crazy time it would be important to include FaceTime and Zoom, as, as Gina said, but maybe even beyond just when the normal parenting time was to take place. Uh, keeping in mind, again, always with the minds of the children, this is a very difficult time for many children also. They're out of their regular routines. Some are homeschooling in various ways. So having additional opportunities to chat, to talk on the phone, uh, whatever it may be, and I think in the event that there was a contempt filed at a later time, I think it would really stand positive in the eyes of the court if your client who was either resisting parenting time or, or somehow curbing the parenting time of the other parent gave as much as possible. And of course that relates to the age of the children and, and the availability of all the resources. Um, most of us have at least, you know, phones, if not Zoom, even the free Zoom provides for 40 minutes. So I would really encourage during this time to think outside the box on, on those various things. Um, I thought that uh, all the attendees had the, the materials that we've supplied in advance of this webinar. webinar. I've discovered since apparently not. Um, so I would encourage you to look at the at the materials that we've provided and I will put in the chat my email if anybody has any questions about the sample parenting plan that I had referenced. Again, I thought it was in front of you. I would also strongly urge you to look at the planning for shared parenting guide that we included in the materials, a guide for parents living apart. Um, it's a document that we as practitioners refer to 
over time and it's it's well regarded by the court it's not just a it's not just a brochure uh, i would encourage you to to look at it i have a question for gina yep so you have somebody who are they can't come to terms on how they're going to do their parenting time during this this pandemic yeah. and do you think that would be something that the parent coordinator could get involved with so it's interesting i actually um have heard from other people some people doing parenting coordination work that there's also a little bit of a hesitance to wade into that territory sometimes because of liability issues so pcs are required to have liability insurance and i think part of some people may be uncomfortable wading into that because you know you're making suggestions about and, and it, what if you make the wrong suggestion right you say well the child should go and then the child ends up sick or whatever um, but I, I do think that um, for people who have a long-standing relationship with their parenting coordinator and ha that that may be a forum to try and t discuss this issue, I think it would certainly fall, it, it, you know, to the extent that the PC um, rules allow parenting coordinators to deal with things like minor adjustments to the parenting plan and parenting, things that are maybe temporary in nature, I do think it could be within the parenting coordinator's purview. I also will say, I think that um, my approach from this with clients is to first make it clear to clients that this, the courts would still like to see parenting time happening. And so if a parent has a concern, you really need to vet with the client what is the concern? What is going on? So if a parent says, well, I don't like the way that this person is observing social distancing rules, and I'm concerned that my child is going to be exposed. Um, what does that mean? What is actually happening? Does it, are there pre-existing conditions for the child, for people in your household? I think that you have to spend a fair amount of time really delving deep into the details of whatever the client's concern is, before you can give advice about how to proceed and whether it is something, because it's very different if you have a situation where maybe one parent is sick and has a positive test, then you have a situation maybe where you have a parent who, because they are a first responder, is exposed on a regular basis. And then you have a situation maybe where parents just generally are not in agreement about how to manage things, or you just have a highly anxious client who says, well, I want my child to be with me during this because I know I'm safe and I don't trust this other person. So there's a whole spectrum of circumstances. And for each client, I think that you have to kind of tease out all of the different factors before you decide on a course of action. And if a client wants to engage in what I think of as self-help and say, I um, don't feel comfortable with the child going to you for reasons X, Y, and Z, the client needs to be aware of what the potential re repercussions are of that. Maybe you talk about filing some sort of, um, you know, emergency motion, complaint for modification with an emergency motion to see if you can be heard on that. And, you know, a judge, and then at least if the judge isn't willing to hear it, at least you've kind of preserved that you tried to get court approval before engaging in self-help or you get an answer from a judge and then you have your answer. So I do think not only with the filing of complaints for contempt, but even with the filing of complaints for modification and, and motions and maybe trying to get them to be heard on an emergency basis might be helpful here. So I know that we're running out of time. Um, yeah. 
segues in. Any questions? So there's a Q&A button at the bottom of everyone's screen if you have any questions. So just to respond to the, the COVID issue, as Gina said, people are filing. Um, the courts are generally not open to the public, but they are open for business. So a shorthand tip to the wise is feel free to file whatever you need to file. Um, the courts are also looking at as much as they can administratively. So that's a possibility too, or telephonic hearings. So obviously there are emergencies. That's when the court is generally open, but you know we don't know exactly what's gonna happen down the road. So we would encourage you to still file. The court has said they still want you to file uh, to the extent you can. And it may be, uh, here we did get a question. Yeah. How will courts handle contempt complaints that will only be reviewed after the shutdowns lift? Question mark, more leniently. I think, so are we, I don't know if the question means with respect to non-emergency contempt complaints. Um, I don't know the answer to that. I think that the courts are scheduling what they can. Um, but I don't know that the standards will, will be different um, in terms of how a court will assess a complaint for contempt. To, oh, and to non-compliance of parenting schedules. Again, I think that's gonna be very, very specific to what the circumstances are. Um, I think it's hard to predict. And how much we try to, to uh, mitigate the, the, yep. the lack of parenting time? Has there been increased opportunities to do non-traditional parenting time? Um, what was the rationale behind uh, refusing the parenting time? Yeah. On, on, the, on both sides, I mean, has the other parent uh, given you good reason to suspend the parenting time? Have they given you opportunity one way or the other do they you know what are they saying that they're doing to prevent themselves if they're a first responder um, or another kind of essential worker I mean, that's really where it gets um, very difficult a lot of the first responders are doing everything that they can they may be safer on some level i certainly am not going to make that judgment since it is so personal but there are other people going out in the, in the work world who are essential workers uh, but you'd need to know what the precautions are that each parent is taking. And to the extent people have parenting coordinators who may not want to get involved uh, in the decision whether or not to suspend parenting time, one way that the PC can be helpful if there is a suspension in parenting time is how that time could be made up yep. or how that time uh, can take place now in an alternate fashion. Uh, there's a question on the Q&A. Question. Oh, here we go. I'll read it. Mom is in a family shelter. The shelter only allows the mother to leave the shelter for medical appointments, pharmacy, and limited grocery out of concern for possible contamination for other residents. Father works in a factory. Opposing counsel is insisting on honoring the court-ordered biweekly transfers. I mean, but part of this problem is that I'm not a, I'm not a judge. I, if this is an emergency, file an emergency action. 
Yeah. To get some file, of contempt, file of contempt. Or maybe maybe this is what the instance what Judge Casey said. Maybe, you know, does father know that she, where her shelter is? I don't know. I assume that she's in the shelter and father doesn't know where she is. Yeah. Maybe maybe she can bring the children to dad, let the kids stay six, seven feet away from him, and they social distance. And something like that shows that mom's tried. She hasn't, you know, she hasn't brought something into her own shelter that would cause problems. She hasn't disclosed where she's living to dad because dad can't come there. Or, you know, perhaps that she goes there and she says, it's the best I can do. You know, I, I, now if the shelter won't allow the children to leave and come back, if that's part of the issue, um, we didn't say that, but I don't know if it's saying, you know, mom can only do these things in order to live there. If the shelter is, won't allow the children to go be, somewhere else for a few days and then come back, that, that also would be a different thing. And then I think mom may, mom has a stronger argument if she is the primary um, caretaker of the children. And, you know, but, you know, is that a written policy? Mm. Well, it's like Gina said, she could file a complaint for modification and, and ask the judge to weigh in on it if she's that nervous about it. But Or say, listen, go file a contempt against me because what's the court going to you know, you said somebody made a, an issue was a, is the court going to be more lenient. I know I don't think they're going to be putting people in, and I could be wrong, but I don't think they're going to be doing jail sentences for this. And and maybe the the the, the issue would be that dad gets two consecutive weeks or dad gets more time down the road. You know, and I, I, this is like the wild, wild west. We have no idea what the courts are going to do. I think it's in the situations where somebody takes off with the child, goes to Idaho, who has very little, and, and doesn't allow FaceTime, doesn't allow chatting, doesn't allow this, doesn't allow that, won't talk to the dad or mom, and just says, I'm not going to let you see the child until I return. It's that willfulness that I think we all have concerns over. And I, you know, I think both parents have to make efforts you know, what that is, I don't know. I mean, the other piece I would say is, has mom spoken to the shelter and shown them a copy of the court order and explained the circumstances? And is the shelter, because if the shelter's letting mom go out for these three purposes, and you're talking about court-ordered parenting time, will the shelter make an exception? I mean, if this were my client, I would start there and make sure that it is absolutely true that the, you know, that the shelter will not permit this type of um you know exchange to occur and what would be the repercussions if it happened does mom get kicked out of the shelter are the kids prevented from coming back you need more information i think to answer this question and then maybe raise it with the court yeah. it sounds like the person asking the question represents the mom yeah um, and again i've been hearing a lot of um outside the box thinking going to a public area a park and at least letting the pardon me we got an answer mother may lose shelter placement if she violates the rule shelter will not accept this visit with father then to me that sounds like a situation where if this is going to jeopardize mother and the children's housing mother has a pretty it would seem to me an argument to be made that um that would not certainly not be in the children's best interest to be homeless and so as a result um you file an number i would file an emergency yeah, I would too. Mod and motion and see if I could get that resolved. And then if mom has to engage in self-help, at least she's tried 
to get the court's input. With a, a very carefully worded affidavit yes, explaining. Exactly. That's the, the biggest piece are the affidavits. Um, the judges are looking at as much information as they possibly can. Yeah. So, yeah. so okay. uh, we do want to be mindful of everybody's time. Yes, uh, I think if there are any uh, further questions along this vein, um, you are absolutely welcome to reach out to all three of our panelists afterwards. Um, and uh, we want to say thank you very much to our speakers for such a great and informative program, um, as well as to our audience for joining us. Um, so we apologize that uh, the materials were not available in advance. Our system was having some issues this morning. Um, they will be distributed uh, after this program, <clears throat> excuse me, with a video link of uh, this recording through the BBA's Learn Online Library. Um, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to myself or to the panelists. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, and we hope that you'll join us for another webinar soon. Thank you. Thank, thank you very you. much, Daniel. Thank you, everyone.